It has been called the world's most famous equation. The world's most famous equation. Originally proposed in 1905 and then further refined in subsequent years, the brilliant German theoretical physicist Albert Einstein first stated the relationship between mass and energy in the simple and profound equation E equals mc squared. You've heard of that, haven't you? Indeed. Even over there, they've heard of it. (laughs) This mathematical equation, which is fundamental to Einstein's theory of relativity, states that the equivalent energy, E, can be calculated as the mass, m, multiplied by the speed of light squared. The implications of this insight were fundamental to the advancement of the physics of nuclear reactions and really ushered the world in 1945 into the atomic age. E equals mc squared. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and rivet your attention on verse 15. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to his younger disciple Timothy, whom he had left to pastor a church in Ephesus. He wrote this letter to Timothy to really encourage him in the work and to lay down some very important realities about what it means to pastor a church of God. But on this particular resurrection morning, I'd like to focus on just this verse 15 in chapter 1, where Paul writes the following, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost of all. Like E equals MC squared, this verse is short and compact. But when it is understood, it reveals a power greater than the power of nuclear physics. Because it is the power to alter a life. Indeed, it is the power to bring life from the dead. And my friends, that is essentially the message of Easter. The message of Easter. So specifically this morning, as we take the time to look at this verse, it captures the essence and significance of the Easter message in three ways. Three ways that this compact verse captures the essence and significance of the Easter message. And here they are for you. Number one, 
The Easter message is consequential in its proclamation. The Easter message is consequential in its proclamation. Secondly, the Easter message is simple in its presentation. It is simple in its presentation. And then third, the Easter message is personal in its application. It is personal in its application. So let's take a look together in the time that we have. First, the Easter message is consequential in its proclamation. Paul says it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. This little expression, it is a trustworthy statement, is a recurring one used only by the Apostle Paul and used only in what is known in the New Testament as the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And it served as a, in, a, in a very familiar way for that first century church to identify truth that could be counted on. It, it was a fixed point of reference. It was an anchor, as it were. Notice, for example, in this same letter in chapter 3 and verse 1, where we find the expression again, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. This is a truth that was important for the church, that they could identify their leadership by those who aspired to the leadership among them. And of course, following that are the criteria, the character uh, evaluation of the men who would aspire to such things. It appears over in chapter 4 and verse 9, where it says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Here it follows the truth. And the truth is, is found here, back up in, in uh, beginning in verse uh, 7, where it says, uh, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, another fixed point of reference. Don't waste your time at 24-hour fitness. Spend your time disciplining your soul and body for godliness, to put it in a more vernacular. It appears in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 11. Where Paul writes there, it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Written to believers in a time when they were under tremendous pressure to turn away from the Christian faith. It appears over in Titus chapter 3 and verse 8. What Paul writes there, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. Again, we need to go backwards to find out what he is talking about. 
And it begins in verse 4 there, and it says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. There, Paul is talking about the reality that redemption originates with God, that it is God's idea. God takes the initiative to reach out and to save the lost. And so here, back in our text this morning of 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, the other occurrence... He says it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, and here the trustworthy statement follows it, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. This little expression marks out truth, consequential truth, reliable truth, truth that is weighty in its significance. It's something to sit up and pay attention to, to take notice of, to, to file away, to not lose track of. Additionally, here, where we have the little formula, it is a trustworthy statement, deserving, notice the adjective full, deserving full acceptance. So Paul further heightens this expression. He, he further lays out the, its consequential nature. He intensifies its meaning, and he extends it to something that demands acceptance. So it is, it is a trustworthy statement. It deserves full acceptance, not partial acceptance, not optional acceptance, but full, complete, total acceptance. This is a very very consequential statement that Paul is making. So what is it? What is the weighty statement that Paul, by this expression, by this citation, demands that we this morning here in the year 2017 sit up and take notice of? It is this. You and I need to be saved. You and I need to be saved, and Jesus is the one who can do it. That is the consequential statement. That is the weighty statement. That is the statement this morning that you must sit up and take notice of. You and I need to be saved, and Jesus is the one who can do it. Beloved, we all readily admit that something's wrong in the world. You don't have to look very far or very hard to see that reality. All around us, we see cruelty. All around us, we see expressions of greed. We see sexual exploitation. Poverty, disease, and death. 
And it's really easy in, in one sense to sort of look out and, and see what's wrong with the world, isn't it? It's really not hard to see that this world is really messed up. Really messed up. But thinking people, thinking people also realize that something is terribly wrong, not just out there, but in here. Thinking people, people who are honest with themselves, recognize that the problems are not all external to them. Indeed, the greatest problems are the ones that are internal, that originate from inside of us. Ugly, hurtful thoughts and words, those images that flash across the screen of your mind that no one else can see, the thoughts you have that you are so glad no one else can know, the words that escape your lips to your own shame and regret. Lying, for there is not a one among us this morning who has not lied. Indeed, if someone were to tell me they have not lied, my response would be, you just did. Right? You just did. We are possessed with an endless appetite of greed. Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? Just a little bit more, right? Ingratitude? Doesn't it bother you when your children are ungrateful, moms and dads? Did you ever wonder where it came from? Did you teach them that? No, it comes naturally. Guilt? We feel guilt because we're guilty, because we have violated a law, and we feel guilty. Pride, anger, impatience, narcissism. I mean, these are just a few of the things that, that well up and out of the human heart. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Beloved, it wasn't supposed to be that way. God created us to enjoy an intimate, loving relationship with him. But that relationship has been broken by sin. Rather than looking to God for our satisfaction, our purpose, our direction, our our meaning in life, The Bible is very clear. All of us have gone astray and sought to live our lives independently of God, without regard to his law and without desire for his person. That's what the Bible calls sin. 
And it's a state of being from which we must be saved. Designed to face outward in love, enjoying and worshiping our Creator, instead we find ourselves separated from Him, bent and twisted and turned in on ourselves. Where do the problems in the world come from? They come from the people. They come from us. They come from you. They come from me. And it doesn't end there. Because beyond that, there, there is a, a sense that most people have, a really a deep sense, that, that this life is not all there is, and there's, there's going to be a, a future reckoning. There are a few who have convinced themselves that it all ends here. But for the vast majority, they rightly understand that, that this is not all there is. There is a reckoning coming. There is a future and a time when we will each appear before God, before our Creator. And when people contemplate that prospect, they hope that God judges their lives on a sliding scale, don't they? I've spoken to way too many people through the years that they are hoping against hope that in the end of it all, when God evaluates them, that he will pick out the worst specimen of humanity and use that one as the standard by which they will be judged. Hoping that they'll make the grade. Beloved, the Bible speaks very, clear, very clearly, very plainly to these realities. This sense of a, of a coming accounting, a reckoning, a, a judgment, an evaluation, the Bible is very clear about that. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 9, in verse 27, it says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. By the way, that invalidates the notion of reincarnation. We live once, we die once, and we face the judgment, the evaluation, the reckoning. And what about this sliding scale? The basis of the evaluation is God's own perfection. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the slide rule. That's the scale. That's the evaluation point. That puts us in an impossible situation, doesn't it? God will judge us someday, and his standard of judgment is his own perfection. That means... You and I desperately need help. We need help. 
We need someone from the outside. Someone not subject to the same flaws and failings. Someone who can rescue us. Someone who, like a drowning man, someone who can get into the water and pull us out. That person is Jesus. That person is Jesus. This is the Easter message, and it is consequential in its proclamation. Secondly, the Easter message is simple in its presentation. It is consequential in its proclamation, for we need help. And it is simple in its presentation. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus and what did he do? Who is Jesus and what did he do? There are many, many confusing answers that are given out there to that question. For the followers of Islam, Jesus is a prophet. A prophet. To those who are Involved in the New Age spirituality, this sort of free-floating, I'm spiritual, you're spiritual kind of thing. You know, no taste for Christianity, but spirituality. Jesus is some kind of spiritual guru. He's some sort of help, self-help person to whom you can go. For many, he is a great moral teacher. And for the vast majority of our fellow citizens here in America and in the Western world, he is irrelevant. He is irrelevant. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus and what did he do? The answer to that question is found here in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. In these words, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is the answer to the question. Christ Jesus, or as we often find it expressed, Jesus Christ, and some people think that's a first and a last name. But the reality is that Christ is a title. It is an official title. It it means Messiah or anointed one, Christ, Messiah. It's used throughout the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to speak of a coming divine deliverer who will rescue God's people from oppression by their enemies. And the most devastating of those enemies is sin and death. Christ is the deliverer. The Messiah, the Anointed One. Jesus, and the word means God saves, introduces a man 
who was born of a virgin in Bethlehem of Judea 2,000 years ago in the reign of Caesar Augustus. He is a historic person. Jesus lived a life of perfect, loving obedience and devotion to God the Father. At approximately the age of 30, he left the family business as a carpenter and began an itinerant preaching ministry throughout the land of Israel. He performed numerous miracles and urged the people to turn from their sin and become his followers, his disciples. And he said that he would forgive their sins. That he would forgive their sins. Beloved, only God can forgive sins. No man can forgive sins. No mere man. Only God can forgive sins. So for Jesus to declare and to claim and to substantiate that claim through his miraculous ministry that he would forgive sin, that he could forgive sin, that he had forgiven sin, was an unambiguous declaration that he himself was God in human flesh. The message of Christmas. All of that is bound up in the name Christ Jesus. Well, except for a small remnant, the majority of the Jewish people rejected Jesus' claims. They wanted no part of his teaching. They called for, and the Romans obliged them by crucifying him, on a cross outside the city wall. He died. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose bodily from the dead. Appearing over a period of 40 days to many of his followers. Eating with them. Speaking with them, to over 500 at one time. He then ascended back to the right hand of God the Father to wait for the day when he will be authorized to return and to establish his great kingdom, to crush his enemies the final enemy being death itself. All who turn from their sin and believe this message will receive God's forgiveness and share in Jesus' resurrection life. Beloved, this is the simple Easter message. And it was this message that absolutely flipped the world on its head. From a handful of frightened disciples huddling in a room with the doors and windows locked for fear of the Jews, they became a bold band of evangelists 
that spread in the next 30 years across the Roman Empire, persistently refusing to be silenced, to continue to preach this simple message, willing to suffer even in order to preach this simple message. And for all who received by faith this message were given the right to become children of God and the church born in the resurrection of Christ grew till it eventually conquered the Roman Empire. We see a sample of their preaching in the 10th chapter of Acts. The 10th chapter of Acts. There, the Apostle Peter has been called upon to to preach the message of the resurrected Christ to a Roman centurion and his household and friends. So given a a command appearance here, Jesus begins to open his mouth beginning in verse 38, the 10th chapter of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10 and beginning in verse 38. And just notice, we only have here a, a short synopsis of his sermon to be sure, but notice the elements that he included in his preaching. Verse 38. He says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, that is, all throughout Israel. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Notice that. After he arose, we ate and we drank with him. Spirits, hallucinations, apparitions, don't eat and drink. Human beings eat and drink. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. This is fundamentally the message, the simple Easter message that those early disciples, those early witnesses spread from one end of the empire to the other. They just couldn't keep their mouths shut. And for that, I am most appreciative. Amen? Question. How does Jesus save sinners? How does he save sinners? 
The message of the Bible is pretty straightforward on this. Jesus became a substitute for them. He became a substitute for them. That is, he offered his life in the place of theirs. The judgment that all of us face, in which the standard is the perfection of God, Jesus, who is the perfect one, stood in my place. He stood in your place, if you're his child this morning, and he took your punishment. He took your punishment. He paid the ultimate price for our sin. And he rose bodily from the dead to demonstrate once and for all to anyone who would look on and question that his sacrifice had been accepted. How do I know that God would look on him and be satisfied for me? How do I know that my sin has been dealt with in Christ? How do I know that his crucifixion, his death, was an adequate substitute for my sin? How can I know? The answer is the resurrection. It is the resurrection. God the Father raised him from the dead, demonstrating to all that he did not die for his own sin, for he had none, but for the sin of others. And death could not keep him, for he had extinguished the sting of death, which is sin. Jesus speaks of his own entrance into the world in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45 and the following. He says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. A ransom. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 3 and 4, where he writes to the Corinthian church there, I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Or Paul's message to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 6 and verse 9. Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Beloved, God's salvation is a result of Christ's entrance into history. The Christian faith is, is rooted in reality. It is a historical reality that we are called upon to believe. If Jesus had not come, if Jesus had not died, if Jesus had not been raised again, then we could not be free from our sin. He tasted death in all its horror, and he defeated it. He defeated it. And he now offers to share that victory and that life and the life that is of the age to come, his resurrection life, with any and everyone who will receive him by faith. For God so loved the world, we read, that he gave his only begotten Son, 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It is a wide-open offer. Question. Are there other options out there? This is America, right? You know, you, you want your options. Go to a restaurant, and we want a menu that's eight pages thick. So we can choose the chicken nuggets, right? <laughs> yeah. Are there other options? No. There are no other options. Jesus is the only Savior. The only Savior. He said himself on the night of his own betrayal and, and arrest, in John 14 and verse 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Listen, if Islam was right and Jesus were a prophet, then the prophet has said there is no other way to come to the Father but through Christ. That would then invalidate Islam. It is internally inconsistent and coherent on that statement alone. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, where Peter says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. No other name. Question. If there were other options available, do you think God would have sacrificed his only begotten son? If there were another way, I mean, Jesus himself in the garden of Gethsemane, he says, sweating drops of blood, Father, if there be any other way. Yet not my will, but your will be done. There is no other way. There was no other way. You were not redeemed with perishable things, Peter says, like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. What will a man give for his sin? The fruit of his body for the sin of his soul? The prophet asks. There is nothing we can give. God must give to us. And he gave to us his own son. It speaks of his love. And it speaks of the weightiness of our need. This is the simple message of Easter. Third, the Easter message is personal in its application. 
It is consequential in its proclamation. It is simple in its presentation. And third, the Easter message is personal in its application. Again, take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and then notice this, among whom I am foremost of all. Among whom I am foremost of all. The word foremost here, it conveys the idea not of first in sequence, but first in prominence. Paul identifies himself here as a sinner. Now, it's interesting because in the same chapter, just a couple of verses earlier, in verses 9 and 10, we are first introduced to the word sinner. Where Paul says that realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Paul says that he is a sinner of prominence among those who could be categorized in that way. Of all the wicked and ungodly behaviors, Paul says, I am prominent among them. Now, wait a minute. This is the Apostle Paul we're talking about, right? Yes. This is the one who was raised within the strict traditions of the Jewish faith, a Pharisee among Pharisees, a person who, who, as to the law, was blameless, he said, a person whose religious attainments would put any and everyone to shame. When it came to religious activities, no one could hold a candle to the Apostle Paul. He was without peer. And yet he says, among those who are lawless and rebellious and contrary to sound teaching, he is prominent first among them. Paul had a deep understanding of the depravity of his own heart. He recognized that all of that spiritual attainment was nothing but a pile of dung. That it would do him no good. And indeed, his pride in all of that was wicked and, and rose up as a stench in the nostrils of God. But I want you to take a look at verse 16. There is incredible hope here. He says, Among whom I am foremost of all, yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Wow. 
Paul says, I am a, a living, breathing example to encourage all of us. That if God would take me, he says, he will take you. No one is beyond the reach of God. No one is beyond the mercy of God. Beloved, it doesn't matter what you have done or what you have not done. You are not beyond the reach of God. His arms are not short. Paul was not beyond hope. Neither are you. Neither are you. But, beloved, simple agreement with these truths presented here this morning is not enough. It's not enough to sit in your pew and nod your head at me. Now and eternity hang in the balance. On June 30th, 1859, the French tightrope walker Charles Blunden became the first man to walk on a tightrope across Niagara Falls. More than 25,000 people gathered to watch him walk 1,100 feet suspended on a tiny rope 160 feet above the raging waters. He worked without any net or safety harness. The slightest slip would have proved fatal. When he safely reached the Canadian side, the, the crowd burst into a roar. In the days that followed, Blunden would walk across the falls many times. Once he walked across on stilts. Another time he took a chair and a stove with him and sat down midway across and cooked an omelet and ate it. Once he carried his manager across riding piggyback. And once he even pushed a wheelbarrow across loaded with 350 pounds of cement. On one occasion he asked the cheering spectators if they thought he could push a man across sitting in a wheelbarrow. A mighty roar of approval rose from the crowd. Spying a man cheering loudly, he asked, Sir, do you think I could safely carry you across in the wheelbarrow? Yes, of course. Get in, the great Blondin said with a smile. And the man refused. Beloved, the message of Easter is glorious. It is a glorious message. It is the message that Jesus saves and that he will save you, but it will do you no good unless you get in the wheelbarrow. May God grant mercy to those who hear his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we have gathered here this morning in this place for the vast majority of us because we have gotten into the wheelbarrow.
by your grace, our eyes have been opened to the truth. Our hearts have been warmed to the reality of Christ and what he has done. And we have fled to him, embracing him by faith, personalizing the gospel for our own lives, recognizing that he drank the cup of your wrath for us individually. And so it is with great joy that we can come and, and celebrate the resurrection and, and affirm one to one another and be affirmed from one another of this great reality that we are now possessed of the life of the age to come, that the resurrection life of Christ he has shared with us and, and that we too need not fear the grave. For as Christ conquered death, so in him we too shall conquer and be restored to you in that unhindered fellowship for which our soul longs. But Lord, in a crowd this size this morning with friends and family and neighbors here, there is undoubtedly one or more who do not know Christ in a saving way. So I pray, O oh Lord, even now, that your spirit would move in their heart and that you would prompt them to call out to Christ right where they are. To say, Jesus, I believe that you died for me, that you rose from the dead. And I turn from my independent and sinful way of life and thinking and I flee to you and, and ask you to save my soul. I will follow you forever. O oh Lord, may you work your marvelous, mysterious grace even now. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.